Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President, Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. There was a time when soldiering on after a head knock was a badge of honour and actively encouraged in contact sports, but that's certainly not the case with sports today. A few high-profile American football cases and close to home AFL and NRL cases, along with the dissemination of knowledge from countless number of case studies, has really changed this attitude remarkably. Today in Australia, concussion is managed much differently, with most contact sports not only changing their policies but even even their playing rules to deal with this growing concern. In the case of children's sport, concussion is taken very seriously indeed. Now in Australia, there's an emerging expert on this topic within the chiropractic profession, and I had the pleasure of attending his presentation at the recent College of Chiropractic Pediatrics annual conference in Melbourne. I'm talking of no other than Dr. Brett Jaros. To give you a bit of background of Brett, uh, he's got quite a substantive um, resume here, but we'll hit the highlights. Brett's graduated from RMIT University with a Bachelor of Applied Science in Complementary Medicine in 2006. He had a Master of Clinical Chiropractic 2008. During his time at RMIT, Brett received a number of awards, including the Chiropractors Association of Australia Graduate of the Year. Since completing uh, further postgraduate studies, um, Brett has also um, has an International Chiropractic Sports Science Diploma from FIX, a postgraduate diploma in sports chiropractic from Murdoch University, and a diplomat of the American Chiropractic Neurology Board. Whilst in private practice, he was nominated and awarded the fellowship for the International College of Chiropractors. He received clinical excellence awards uh, from the Australasian Academy of Functional Neurology and has, was presented Chiropractor of the Year Award by the Chiropractors Association of Australia Victoria branch. For the past decade, Brett has also lectured uh, within the chiropractic degrees at RMIT um, in, in Melbourne and still remains an active postgraduate lecturer teaching the International Federation of Sports Chiropractic, EFNOR, uh, which is Functional Neuroorthopedic Rehabilitation, and the Carrick Institute of Clinical Neuroscience and Rehabilitation. Brett's currently part of a medical team with the Surf, uh, with the World Surf League, and uh, provides care to surfers who compete at the Rip Curl Pro Bells Beach uh, competition every um, uh, every Easter. As well as being a member of the Federation International de Chiropractic du Sport, uh, that's FIX Education Commission. Hi, Brett. Welcome to the ACA podcast. Oh, hi, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Now. Um, your presentation at the uh, pediatric conference uh, a few weeks back was so riveting that I was really keen to get you on the podcast, but realized that there's so much information uh, and so much really great, good information for chiropractors that we just couldn't do it in uh, one podcast. So uh, we've had a chat just uh, off air before the podcast, and you're happy to do two of these? 
I am indeed, Anthony, not a problem. Fantastic. So we're going to cover in the first one uh, concussion and the assessment, and then in podcast two, we'll be going into a uh, persistent post-concussive syndrome, something that probably uh, more chiropractors will be seeing um, and certainly very important for the longer-term management of these cases. So, Brett, let's start off, first of all, how common are sports-related concussions and what are the sports or activities most associated with these injuries? Yeah, so it's, it's a really difficult question, to be honest, Anthony, as it relates to the child and adolescent uh, population because one of the things with concussions in that age group is the research studies are actually very limited or they're not available for that particular group. And one of the other issues with it is that they don't really have too much research with, say, recreational club sports like we would have here in Australia. Most of the data that is out there in the literature comes from American high school sports and the and the sporting systems through through the U.S. So when we look at this data, we have to remember that a lot of this is is limited, and the one call from the consensus group that puts together an annual every four years they get together and have a meeting to go through all the literature is their biggest call right now is we need more research and more data in the child and adolescent group as well as in female populations and other advanced diagnostic imaging which i sure will cover through this podcast but when it comes to these numbers the uh, concussion is obviously common in organized sport but it's not really uh, the area that we actually see concussions the most. They're estimating that over 50% of concussions in high school age youth are actually not related to organized sports. They're saying that only about 20% of concussions are related to the organized school sports teams. Right. And they, suge- they suggest that between 2 and 15% of athletes that participate in organized sports will suffer a concussion during one season. So if we look at some overall numbers from a couple of studies from uh, a summary paper, a position paper actually from the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, they, they published that 1 to 1.8 million sports-related concussions per year in the 0 to 18 years of age range. Wow. You mentioned before uh, about that consensus uh, group. Um, is there a, an exact definition for concussion? What, what does um, actually occur at that sort of pathophysiological level? And is there agreement on this? Yeah, so when we look at this uh, consensus statement, again, that these guys, uh, some of the world experts in this field who are getting together every four years, sitting down, and before they have this meeting, they're allocating particular questions where they feel that there is a lack of knowledge or that where, the, where we need more information and more knowledge in the research. And we send particular groups away to collect that data, review the literature, and then try to use that literature to answer the questions that have been put forth ahead of time. And so with the consensus group, they take all of that data together and then they come up with the best consensus definition for concussion which is it's a traumatic brain injury induced by biomechanical forces and those forces can be caused by either a direct blow to the head to the face to the neck or elsewhere in the body with an impulsive force transmitted to the head and i think that that part of the definition to me is very important because we naturally think about 
oh, I, I whacked my head getting out of a car or I saw a, a blow to the head in a particular sporting event. But the fact that I could actually get hit to the body and have a whiplash style mm. of mechanism, so in a car, and my neck and my head whip forward and backwards or side to side, think of an athlete playing maybe a collision sport like Aussie Rules football or rugby where tackling is involved and we grab that player and we bring them to the ground, that idea of they might land on their shoulder but their head and their neck could whip around and there's no contact to their head at all. So that alone could be something from a mechanics perspective that could cause a concussion. In fact, you did actually make the statement, I think, through your um, presentation that, um, you know, whiplash is concussion um, because of the, that biomechanical relationship. Yeah, I'm sure we'll go through that in a, in a little bit more detail. It's just I, I always like to try and separate the, the two things here, because if we look at the definition of actually concussion or sport related concussion, it it's a, has a rapid onset of symptoms, but they're short lived and they resolve spontaneously. And that's the important bit about concussion is knowing that a concussion will have the symptoms that resolve spontaneously. And those symptoms are due to a functional disturbance rather than a structural injury. And you mentioned earlier on to start the podcast that as a profession, the chiropractic profession, obviously other manual therapists such as the physiotherapy profession, osteopaths, exercise physiologists, because this condition is one of a functional disturbance, mm. we are very, very well placed to be part of the healthcare team in the management of this because there are no standard neuroimaging studies. We can't use a CT. We can't use a standard MRI to diagnose concussion. We don't yet have blood biomarkers to diagnose a concussion, even though they're researching it, trying to find this um, we don't have saliva markers we don't have any of that and so as it stands right now concussion is one of a clinical assessment and clinical diagnosis i want to just go back um you mentioned we're just to finish off some of the things about the yeah. whiplash there um, one of the things that i recall you saying is um as far as the biomechanics are concerned, is that the difference between sort of um, that linear movement and the rotational movement that may happen with um, that sort of acceleration, deacceleration of whiplash, and, and the impact that that might have on creating shear forces um, in the brain or in the brain stem. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, no problem. So if we look at the movie Concussion that came out with Will Smith, which was a a movie that was portraying the discoveries of uh, Dr. Bennett Amalu, the, the neuropathological uh, uh, forensic doctor in the US, who uh, discovered uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And the way that a lot of people view concussion, and it's still, um, you see pictures of this on the internet, it's still in textbooks, is Bennett Amalu showed that the you shake the brain, and oh, shake the skull, and you would see the brain rattle around the skull and we may have heard these words of coup and counter coup type of injuries where the brain actually hits the skull and we get this injury to the actual brain tissue yeah but with current research what they're actually more suggesting is if we think of the anatomy of the skull sitting on the neck and that neck has seven vertebrae that are obviously moving 
in three dimensions. So we've got flexion, extension, rotation, lateral bending, but we know all of that works in coupled motion. And so when we get hit, because the vestibular nerve connects the skull to the brainstem, so my vestibular system lives in the petrous temporal bone, that's hard and that's fixed, but I have a nerve that connects that vestibular apparatus into the actual brainstem, and I have this nervous system, skull, vertebral column, brain inside the skull, brainstem, spinal cord inside that vertebral column hanging there. When I have a whiplash style of mechanism, again, picture being hit behind in a car or being tackled to the ground and landing on the shoulder, because that head and that neck whip in that acceleration, deceleration mechanism, and because we have the actual vestibular nerve connecting the bone into the brainstem, there's an element of rotation that occurs because the neck allows that. Mm. And because of that rotation, if we all picture a towel that's wet and we wring out a towel, yep. the pathways through the middle of the brainstem appear to be these pathways like wringing out a towel that are being twisted and stretched. And so even though it's not completely yet understood, and we're obviously the advanced style of imaging is starting to look into this a bit further, they're categorizing the force that occurs there. It causes disruption of and or disruptive stretching of neuronal cell membranes and axons. So our pathways there are being stretched and twisted, and that results in a complex cascade of different ionic, metabolic, and pathophysiological events. But for me, the important thing from a neuroscience and a neuroanatomy perspective there is we understand there's the physiology and the metabolic things that are going on. But if we look at those structures that live through that midline of the brain and we start at the top, you've got your corpus callosum and you start making your way through there and you've got hypothalamic structures all the way through to the brainstem where what lives in there are the reticular formation and those areas and we start to correlate the actual anatomy of those areas to a lot of the symptoms that we start to see in concussion we can start to see there's a, a nice relationship between those structures and the symptoms so those twisting moments that are occurring i always generally say to people if you've had a whiplash injury I want you to think that it's a concussion. Yeah, definitely. And at the same time, if you've had a concussion, I want you to think that you've also had a whiplash injury. And if we look at the consensus with concussion assessment, we need to assess the nervous system, but we also need to assess the neck. So we can't really have one without the other. We've got to be assessing both. Yeah. Let's jump to the, uh, the sports field or, or wherever it is that this concussion is going to take place someone gets uh, a knock, uh, a whiplash injury, dragged to the ground, whatever it might be, what are the things that you're looking for that might make you think if you're on the sidelines, that child, adult, whoever it might be, may have had a concussion? What are the things that you sort of um, think about or look for? Yeah, so there's some key things that have been shown in the literature to be uh, able to be recognized by people that don't have medical training with good reliability so this is very relevant just for 
the, the parents, the brothers, the sisters, etc., that may be out there watching. But if we see someone have a blow to the head or a blow to the body, and then we see that person, uh, when they get hit, you see them fall to the ground and they don't protect themselves. So normally as we're falling, we would see people actually outstretch their arms yeah. to protect themselves. So a non-protective or a ragdoll response where we see the hit, but then they just fall to the ground without protecting themselves. And the general reason that that happens is because they've actually lost consciousness in that hit. So you see the hit to the body or to the neck or to the head, wherever it may be. And then that person has actually lost consciousness. But the way you will see that is they don't protect themselves falling to the ground. Yeah. That's one thing that we might see. The other one that we may see is that we see the hit again. And then you see the person go into what's called tonic posturing. And that's where you may see them laying on the ground and their arms may be rigid up in the air. Those arms may be rigid by their side. You may see their legs or toes pointed down and together. And again, they're rigid. So just picture someone that's stiff, their, their arms being stiff, their body being stiff, their legs being stiff, and that tonic posturing is another one we may see. Um, another one that's more subtle is we may see an impact seizure, or it, of course, could be rather large where the person has the concussive incident and or just the actual trauma. And then we see that their arms or their legs actually start to have small seizures, rapid movements of the arms or legs or the head. So we see an impact seizure. The other ones include motor coordination or the other way it's referred to is staggers where we see someone get hit. They try and stand up and you see them start to walk and then they stagger and fall back down to the ground. Yep, yep. And, of course, uh, other parts of that for, from our uh, our training, the medical training point of view, is if we look at, say, ataxia, where we see someone get hit and you see them start to walk around actually ataxic, looking like they're maybe a little bit drunk. Yes. And you, you see them a broader base of stance. You see them having that sort of swaying and walking like they're unsteady. So those types of um, visual cues there, if we see that, if we recognize those things, we're going to immediately grab that person and we're going to remove them from the field of play and we are going to start to conduct our sideline examination. So that is, as soon as we see those findings, immediately removal from play. Yes. And we start the examination on the sideline. The catch, the ones that become tricky, are the ones that aren't as severe as those five. And that's where we start to see people laying on the ground and maybe grabbing their head. Yeah. Um, if we see people like slow to get up off the ground, and I know this was something that has definitely changed some of the things that were occurring in Australian rules football, where athletes would go down and they basically play for a free kick to try and show the umpire that something had happened yeah whereas now they won't stay down on the ground as much because that's considered one of the signs that you've actually had a concussion so that's right you're 20 minutes off 20 minutes off the field for a concussion test before you're allowed to come back on again correct so uh, things like grabbing of the head slow to get up if the actual athlete uh, reports symptoms to you as well if they say I've, I've just been hit i'm feeling sick i'm feeling dizzy i've got a headache those um, are clues, of course, that we may want to be removing these people, or rather may, we will be removing these people from the field of play and examining them on the sideline 
uh, with our obviously more thorough examination processes. So before we go through the on-the-spot uh, examination that might be done uh, immediately after these injuries, if you're seeing tonic posturing, you know, if you're seeing sort of seizures, ataxia, etc., I'm expecting that um, that firstly they're probably not going to do too well with their uh, with their uh, sideline examination, but these are probably people that are going to go off in an ambulance for for further assessment initially just to rule out more sinister problems is that the case or or is if you've seen that um it's still dependent on what the examiner site that sideline examination uh tells you so it's going to be the person who's on the sideline and what their obviously qualifications are as to whether or not those uh, assessments can be performed on the sideline but it's always basic first aid principles and we always have to remember that the first thing especially when we're looking at a player who's uh, had some form of impact and is unconscious, we always first thing is paying attention to the cervical spine. Yeah. So first aid principles, if someone's unconscious, it's, it's the neck until proven otherwise. Um, it's always still our neck is part of our assessment. But if we're seeing those neurological findings, we're recognizing that we're removing them from the field of play and we will be referring them for medical assessment um, via obviously ambulance uh, depending on accessibility and all of these things depend upon where the injury is occurring. If it's out in remote, rural, outback, whichever state you're in versus where you're in a city with immediate access to hospital care, etc. So let's get back to the sideline uh, examination. Let's assume that someone is uh, qualified to do these assessments. What is the typical uh, immediate post-concussion assessment involve? So the key thing here is the minimum standard of assessment that needs to be done on the sideline is the SCAT-5. Now, the SCAT-5 is what's been produced via the concussion in sport group. So every four years, they will provide updates to this assessment based on the best evidence. So it's not a gold standard. It's a minimum standard. And the only uh, problem with the actual testing, it's not a pass or a fail. It's you do the actual SCAT-5 and you are looking at the entire clinical picture, but we don't want to use the SCAT-5 as the sole basis for making a diagnosis. We would like to be able to add other types of assessments on top of what's included in the SCAT-5, but it will run you through the things that you were able to observe. It'll run you through your Maddox style of questions of asking people if it's in a sporting context, you know, what's the team you're playing against, which way you're kicking, what, who was the last team you played, etc. Then you would move into the Glasgow Coma Scale uh, to be determining uh, whether or not we've got someone from a consciousness perspective. And then we've got our cervical spine assessments. Uh, we've got our different symptom scale, so our post-concussion symptom scale of asking the person about the 22 potential different types of symptoms in concussion and where they rate those out of six. We've got our standardized assessment of concussion. We've got our neurological exam built into that. We've got our modified balance error scoring system built into that. So it's a very comprehensive assessment and it's a free evidence-based tool that people can just jump on the internet and be able to download. But the key thing here is to remember that that's the minimum standard to be used on the sideline and you do actually need to be trained in its use 
uh, to be able to administer the actual uh, testing appropriately. Right. Now, as it relates to children, there is a child SCAT-5 as well, and this examination is only, well, the SCAT-5, child SCAT-5, apologies, is for children aged 5 to 12 years of age. For those right. that are between 13 to 18, well, as soon as you're 13 years old, you just go and use the adult or the normal SCAT-5. Yep. The major differences between the two versions is that there's no Maddox questions on the child SCAT-5. The post-concussion symptom scale has the child's version, yep. but then you've also got a carer or the parent's report of the right. symptoms, and there's also no standardized assessment of concussion built into it. So the, the actual SAC question, which is uh, what month is it, what day is it, uh, what's the date today, what day of the week, what year is it, what's the time right now within the nearest hour, those things are removed from the child SCAT-5. You mentioned the Maddox questions. What, what, what questions are they? So the, the Maddox questions are, are things like uh, what venue are we at right. today, what half is it now, uh, who scored the last in this particular game? Do you remember yeah. which team you played last week? Now, of course, those types of questions, uh, and it's been an interesting conversation I've, I've been having with uh, some of the, the colleagues I work with with the surfing, is that's a bit different when you're out in the water. Yeah. Because there's no, <laughs> there's no halves. Uh, and so these questions need to be uh, relevant to obviously the sport and the environment that you're actually in. Yes. Well, we'll certainly make the uh, the links to the SCAT-5 and the child SCAT-5 available um, uh, with the podcast. Do you need baseline data in order to do the SCAT-5? No, not at all. So when it comes to assessing and diagnosing a concussion, baseline data is has been suggested by the consensus group that that's not required. From uh, a number of different people and another number of different groups out there having baseline data can start to prove useful though for the ongoing management and the ongoing assessment of someone because we can refer back to baseline data to be able to determine has that person returned to their baseline before we return them back to sport now i know this is something we'll talk about a little bit later in the second podcast but that differentiation between no, you don't need baseline data to make a diagnosis, but clinically it would help prove useful if you had that information to make a better judgment on when someone's ready to return to school, return to sport. So you're very up to date with uh, this information, um, obviously. And in fact, one of the papers that you uh, presented uh, at the conference was the Bovard's 2019 paper on the ABC concussion assessment. Uh, perhaps you'd like to run through that for our listeners. Yeah, so um, th this particular, uh, actually, Anthony, it wasn't an actual um, paper. It was actually a podcast that was conducted oh, right. by the uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine because one of the interesting things that exists in professional sport of football soccer we should so for australia soccer for the rest of the world so football, soccer for me yep. the, yeah yeah um <laughs> is that in elite level sport the soccer uh rules dictate that when a player goes down if you're suspecting someone to have a concussion you've got three minutes to assess them out on the field and if we look at the scat if you are very well trained in the scat 
it's going to take you at least 10 minutes. But if we also look at the research behind balance testing and the modified BESS is part of the SCAT-5, to do balance testing, you should really be waiting for 20 minutes after an actual concussion, a suspected concussive episode. So in the sport of soccer at that elite level, we're in a bit of a dilemma because we've got three minutes to be able to run out there onto the field and make that examination because if you do remove that player from the field, in soccer, that person is not allowed to return. So uh, Jim Bovard came out with a, a beautiful um, a, B, C, D, E, F uh, process for the, what he does when he runs out onto the field to assess the soccer players because uh, he works with a couple of the professional teams in Canada. So the A stands for alert and aware. So he runs out there. Is that athlete actually alert and aware on the field? So if they're unconscious, the way to categorize this, if you saw the person get hit and they're unconscious you know that you're removing them from the field of play because that's one of our loss, loss of consciousness episodes. Yeah, absolutely. But we are looking at that athlete and because they're unconscious, we are thinking that it's a cervical spine injury until mm. proven otherwise. So yep. we are first aid principles. We're going to be protecting the neck. We're obviously going to be getting a stretcher board out there and we're going to be removing them from the field of play. However, if you see a player away from the action and they have just let's just say collapsed behind play we're thinking cardiovascular event yeah so those types of things where a player's down on the field if it happened uh in the field of play we and they're unconscious we start to think cervical spine and if that's away from the field of play think it's some form of cardiovascular event and so we run out there is that person alert are they aware we're asking them those matic style of questions where are we you know what venue are we at score team you're playing, etc. So if they pass the alert and the awareness part, we move into B, which is behavior and balance. So this is very important for the practitioners to be able to know their athletes and, and know their team. And if we're in an environment where we're uh, potentially on the sidelines and you are not familiar with a particular team, being able to uh, have someone that you could run out there with to be able to understand has that player got a change in their behavior? Is there anything suspicious about that? Um, so looking at that behavior uh, is one part and then looking at balance. So we're looking at that staggers, that motor and coordination, that ataxia. If you see them up and they're staggering around, of course, we're going to remove them from the field of play. Yep. So if we see that their behavior and balance, you uh, deem that to be okay we then move on to c which is for the cervical spine and for cognition so obviously from a chiropractor's perspective we're in a very you know a good situation here to be able to assess the cervical spine so the, the minimum thing of course is obviously palpating the midline of the cervical spine on the spinous processes and looking for uh, suspected obviously pain spots that may give you indications of obviously fractures and more significant things of you know facet dislocations etc uh, but i've got our different cervical spine sprains and strains our range of motion that we can assess for um, and then asking them the questions are there any neck pain any focal neck pain headaches associated with it etc and the other c is cognition which starts to fit into the uh, sac style of questions that we talked about before 
fits into the Maddox questions there too. So the behavior um, alert awareness, you can see there's a bit of an overlap there yeah. with the cognition, but it's really yep. nice just to categorically break it down. Yep. And then we can go through obviously asking them symptoms at that point in time. And so we can ask them, you know, do you have any headache? Do you have any neck pain, nauseousness? Do you feel dizzy, blurred spots, light sensitivity, etc.? And just asking them for symptoms and how they're responding, of course, we can then have a, an idea, are they responding slow? We can get an idea of their cognition to be able to say, no, you know what? I think we need to remove you from the field of play and examine this on the sideline uh, in more detail. But if they pass the cervical spine and the cognitive aspects, we then move on to D, which is for dizziness. And so for the dizziness, this was the first time I had seen um, a particular style of assessment be utilized. There's a lot of research on this assessment, which is called VOMS, which is the vestibular ocular motor screening. And the vestibular ocular motor screening consists of a number of eye movement tests uh, of pursuits and saccades. And I know we're going to go through this further, Anthony, in the second podcast. So yeah, definitely. Just very, yeah, very quickly, it's just pursuits, saccades, near point convergence, a VOR test, a visual motion sensitivity test. And so using that on the sideline to see, does that exacerbate or bring on any of their symptoms? And it's the first time that that has really been utilized as a, as a test. The, the VOMS is not part of the SCAT-5. I'd be really interested to see uh, the next consensus meeting, which is next year, if the VOMS becomes part of the SCAT-5. Right. My, my gut clinical call, and I, this is just a personal opinion, I, I think it will be because the amount of research that's coming out on VOMS is is, is quite substantial and and quite significant in terms of the um, the diagnostic capacities and the information that it gives. So that's our dizziness ex example. And of course, in there, you can start to throw in other things like your, uh, your pupillary light responses there. So if we start to see someone not getting a, a light response with their pupil, we are immediately thinking about uh, obviously more sinister red flag things yeah. where we want to be obviously getting these people immediately to hospital because of maybe potential bleeds or um, pressures that are developing within the central nervous system. But we could also throw in our finger to nose and Rombergs. So, so far we've covered obviously A, being alert and aware, B, being for that behavior and balance, C, being for the cervical spine cognition, D, being for dizziness. And the beautiful thing is, let's say they've passed all of this. Well, the next thing that Jim came up with is this exertion. And so let's now get that athlete to very quickly do two or three 10-meter sprints across the field. Yep. Again, remember, this is he's got three minutes on a soccer pitch to, to make this call. So he gets them to do that exertion, and then he asks them, how do you feel now? You know, Do you have any symptoms now? Has that like brought on? any of your symptoms yeah and like, then you can ask them do you feel like you're ready to play again do you feel like your balance is okay and you could quickly check a couple of those things and if they pass the exertion part of it then the f is for follow-up and so that's where we could say to our athlete that's on the field listen if you feel any symptoms start to develop on the field once i once i run off you can take a knee on the ground and you could tap onto your head or you, you could have a particular sign that you and your player may indicate so that we know that this person's not feeling very good. We need to stop playing. We need to remove them. So that follow-up's important. And then in the case of professional sport, 
a lot of cameras are on those events. So if you're part of the medical team, to be able to then run back, you've, repro- you've approved that the player's okay, you've given them the so- little clues to say, you give me this indication, if you're not feeling right, we'll remove you from the field of play. But then your job is to then run back to the sideline and if we've got any video footage of the actual incident, to then bring up that video footage to see, did you see any loss of consciousness when they had the trauma? Did you see the tonic posturing? Did you see the staggers, the motor incoordination? Was there an impact seizure? And then if you then see that on the sideline, you're going to then go out and grab that player and remove them from the field of play. Yes. Yes. Oh, well, there's so much there, isn't there? And it's, it's, it's so interesting the way it sort of all relates now into the the neurology and it's so much about what um you know what chiropractic is is all about so um that's a pretty thorough i think uh assessment and understanding of what happens immediately post uh concussion and and how to think about these sorts of things but um there's still so much more with a persistent post-concussive syndrome so so brett are you ready to come back and uh, do another podcast in a couple of weeks time uh, it'd be a pleasure, Anthony. Really appreciate it. All right, it's been great today. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope you found this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and look forward to chatting you again on our next ACA podcast. Mm-hmm.